This is a story of sex and love and the confusion between one and the other. There's also plenty of depression in there. Oh, and filmmaking. Is depression funny? It's got to be or else I'd die. It's the hilarious world of depression. I'm John Moe, and I'll say up front that this episode contains some pretty frank discussions about sex. The discussions about sex are not sexy, far from it, but they are honest. And that's what our guest has been doing in the last few years, getting honest about the role of sex and love and mental health in her own past. I'm Charlene de Guzman, and I'm an actor and a writer, and we're in Pasadena. Is that right? Yeah, we're <laughs> like, in Pasadena. Charlene de Guzman has worked as a musician and dancer, too. She co-wrote and stars in the movie Unlovable, which is based on her life. The film tells the story of Joy, who's trying to pull herself together. Joy's life and Charlene's had fallen apart due to an addiction to sex and love. This is from the movie. How are you? I lost my boyfriend. I lost my apartment. I lost my job. Oh, and I just banged a bunch of random dudes at the same time, and I don't remember. I don't know what to do anymore. Charlene grew up in San Jose. Were you a performer growing up as a kid? I was. I was a competitive dancer. Ooh. And so I was, like, obsessed with ballet, tap, jazz, lyrical, acro, like, everything. That was my life. Acro is acrobatic? Yeah. <laughs> what is lyrical? Oh, my. They don't use that term anymore, but anybody who was a dancer in the 80s and 90s will feel me on this, that lyrical was like, um, you know, dancing to—now they call it contemporary. But back then, like, you know, when I was nine, we did a dance to, like, A Whole New World from Aladdin. Like, that's uh, lyrical. I'm picturing a lot of kind of, like, flopping around yeah, sort of dancing. Yeah, like scarves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Her life at home was considerably less celebratory. Um, Immigrant parents and, you know, very Catholic and like, you know, nobody talked about anything. Everything was a secret and everything was always don't tell your dad because he would get mad. You know, he was a rager Um, and like no one really showed emotions. No one shared emotions. No one showed anything um, Were there issues that needed to be talked about that oh, weren't being talked about? Absolutely. I mean, I'm, as with all families, I'm sure. But, like, I'm sure now, you know, that I've, like, been in therapy for a long time and I've done a lot of work on this, it's like I'm sure of it that every single family member was, like, had their own demons that they were struggling with and, like, that's what it ended up looking like, you know? I uh, I talked to Margaret Cho for mm-hmm. the show, and she talked about the the experience of uh, the Korean immigrants mm-hmm. and how there was this pressure to be successful at the at the expense of everything else. Right. You needed to show what a valuable role you were going to play yeah. in the economy. Was yeah. it similar with the Philippines? Oh my gosh, it's just so. What I, when I look back at my family, it was like it had to look 
picture perfect on the outside. So in terms of like making sure that we had nice outfits for like the picture and like showing up to Bible study and like just presenting ourselves in this very perfect way when in truth, like, I mean, we weren't even talking to each other. Like we didn't even have dinner together. Why not? I don't know. Like, first of all, my parents worked a lot because, again, with, like, I got to make money for the kids. Like, it's like we came to the United States. We're giving our everything to our kids. Like, that was when I look back, like, their language of love almost of, like, that's the love. It was just, like, they're working two, three jobs to, you know, provide for us. Right. Keep you in sequence for the dance competition. Yes, lots of sequence. And I look back on that and I'm like, that was a lot of money. And if I think about it more, I'm just like, I might have rather not like had them work less jobs and like been around to emotionally support me and like what I was going through or what, you know. I've been thinking a lot about that lately with the that sort of archetype, that mythology of Oh, grandpa worked four mm-hmm, jobs mm-hmm. and never slept yeah. and never saw yeah. his parents and how we idealize that oh, in our society. It's so wrong. Like, it's funny how, like, every Mother's Day you'll hear people talk about their moms of, like, she's so selfless. Yeah, and I'm like, we need to good. stop making that a good thing <laughs> yes. because we've got all these people overworking themselves because they need to in order to be a good parent. When truth, like, they're not taking care of myself themselves. Like when I look back at my parents, the thing that I wished for them is that they loved and t- took care of themselves because then they would be available to their kids. So the emotional distance was one thing. Then there was the need to project a happy life that wasn't really there. And that dissonance, that can mess with your head. There was something else going on too, something much more tangible. So my dad, and you see a little bit of it in the movie, Um, but he had, I mean, he had his own demons and, uh, a lot of that was put into like this really kind of unhealthy obsession with women. And so an example of what that looked like was, is that, um, when I was a child, the garage was collaged with centerfolds, like top to bottom, left to right. So there's like naked women everywhere. And then he'd like frame a centerfold and like put it in the bathrooms, the closets, like. In the house? Yes. And I didn't know that this was not normal and weird till like my mid-20s when I was telling a boyfriend. He was like, you know, that's kind of weird, right? And like I had no idea because you really don't know. Right. Whatever you get is your normal. Yeah. So I really thought like every dad had that. And like I'd have – now when I look back, I have friends that would come over and they like look at the bathroom of like some like, you know, woman on the wall and be like, what is that? And I'd be like, what? (laughs) You know, the thing dads do. <laughs> the thing dads do. <laughs> you know, the normal um, thing all the fathers do. Yeah, and so, I mean, there was just, it's very unwell and no boundaries. And then so, like, he was into porn and, like, um, we'd go to the video store and, like, me and my mom would get my dad porn or, like, it was just talked about. It was just so weird. It, like, now, I mean, obviously how, now I'm like, that's not okay. Have you talked with your mom about how she felt about all this? <sighs> there was one time I tried... Um, I, a therapist had recommended, like, because I was seeing her and she was in town and it went really bad because, I mean, she was not available to that conversation. Again, like, we don't talk about anything, so if I'm bringing this stuff, like, she basically, like, shut down, like, completely shut down, like, deer in headlights for a while and then 
came back and said, oh, I was strong and fine with it. Like, I don't know how you ended up the way you did. Uh, and turned it, it around and on and, he, and she was like, maybe your your aunt, like, she takes pills for something. Like, maybe you have, like, she just, like, was, like, just completely not. Um, it was really bad. But she did eventually come back again and, like, apologized for that a little bit. So there's something there. She did watch the movie. And what I thought was funny about it was that she just, like, said good things and, like, never once addressed any anything really in the movie. She just said, like, you did a good job. Uh-huh. She was like, your emotions were very real. And I was thinking, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out I did some research. Yeah. <laughs> that is so, yeah, my, my family are uh, Norwegian immigrants. Mm. And they, they have the similar reticence about sharing any yeah. emotions. And I was always the, like, that was my form of rebellion. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. like, I'm going to express everything. Yes. It's like I was secretly raised by Italians, but yeah. sent to live with them. I feel like that's my rebellion to this day. I'm yeah. just like, and now I'm making a movie. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and in, in, in the, you know, I can't think of a lot of uh, Filipino-American performers who, right. who go to the places that yeah. you go to. And yeah, 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 yeah. Growing up, Charlene started to notice boys a lot. I mean, you look at my journals when I was like in first, second grade. I'm mm. just writing about boys. Wow. Yeah. Boy crazy, we call Boy it. Boy crazy, which I also thought was a normal thing. But now when I look back, I'm like, it wasn't that healthy for me because yeah. it was in my brain all the time. Who were boys to you? Like, did you idealize them as like all being wonderful people? Guess so, or I think, I mean, because when you look at my pattern, it was always someone who was kind of unavailable in terms of like not liking me back or oh right liking somebody else. I always right. liked a, a guy who liked someone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then meanwhile, the boys are being taught, oh, if you like her, you just have to be mean to her. Yeah. It's all so damaging. It's all so damaging, and it just got me into it deeper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when you were in this, I guess, obsessive behavior, mm-hmm. um, did it come out as, like, how else did it manifest? Like, were you depressed? Were you, did it affect your eating? Did it affect, oh you know, my your gosh. It affected compulsive behavior? What, what was it? Everything. So I would say I was pretty happy as a kid. And then it was middle school that I like started getting really depressed um, just because I was bullied. Um, I didn't fit in anywhere. I was obsessed with boys and I was so obsessed with a boy eventually in eighth grade, but then he was like, do you want to be my girlfriend? And then I I was the happiest girl in the world. But then he actually liked my friend and a, a month later had a girl go up to me and break up with me while he was while I was watching him on the basketball courts he was playing basketball I'm just watching him and then this girl comes up to me and it's like he doesn't want to be with you anymore I'm like what (laughs) wow and I mean it was like a month-long like nothing thing but like that was like I thought I was gonna marry him I thought he was the one and like I got really 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 depressed and like that started um the the self-harm behavior I started like scratching and cutting myself and like that went on until like my early 20s and we've talked with people about the the cutting before because it does seem so illogical yeah why why did you do it what did you get out of it I think the first time I did it I really just want me I was like maybe he'll he'll see how much he hurt me so that's Uh, what it was I mean I was 12 or 13 yeah so that's how it started but 
you know, throughout when I was doing it, it was a way to stop myself from crying because now I see that, like, I just didn't know how to feel feelings. and I never was taught how to, you know, feel feelings. And I don't think I learned how to feel feelings till very recently. So was the cutting away of jump-starting yourself and f- to feel something? It was to stop crying. It was just get me out of my state. Oh. It would just, like, numb me. It would just stop me. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, like, here's something real. Yeah, to that, focus on. To focus on other than the swirling thoughts. Yeah, and it's funny now because I feel like the same kind of practice has to happen now, but, like, now I'm just like, I'm going to go work out or I'm going to, like, yeah. call a friend or, like, it's like, the same thing of, like, let's, like, move the focus. But, like, that was just, like... That was the way I knew back then. After high school, Charlene chose a college for a reason that pretty much matches the narrative that we've been building here. It's funny because I ended up at Arizona State only because I met this guy at a rave and was like in love with him for two weeks. And then I went to his college, which is Arizona State. So that's where I was. Like, so basically my trauma led me to just being really obsessed with boys and Mm. like having sex all the time. Because, (laughs) I mean, you mentioned this in the movie too. Like you thought that's what your dad would love. That's what I thought that's all what all men wanted. Yeah. Because if I thought everyone was like my dad, then I was like, oh, then this is the ideal woman. And then so I'm like, I'm going to go be that woman. And Mm. that's what happened. But yeah, in college, I had an eating disorder, um, a lot of, like, body dysmorphia. and But again, when I look at my childhood, when I'm looking at my dad's, like, shrine of, like, beautiful naked women, it's just, like, I thought that I needed to be that woman. And, like, the truth is, it's, like, I'm not those women that he had on the walls. So it was just a... And those women aren't even those women. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just this weird, yeah. distorted art it's, fantasy it's, thing. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. For Charlene, sex and guys represented validation. I put my worth on, like, whether a guy liked me back or not. Like, wow. that was my whole shit up until, like, I was 31 or whenever it is when I started recovery for it. Charlene de Guzman has a name for what was wrong. I label my experience as sex and love addiction, like the both of them together. Okay. Because whereas like sex addiction is just like, oh, I can't stop having sex and I just need to keep getting off. Mine was like sex was part of the love addiction in terms of like, I'm going to use sex to get that validation. I'm going to um, use sex to get this love. Mm-hmm. So it was just a matter of always trying to, like, fill that void with somebody else. And so were you looking for for love from your sexual partner or were you just looking for people who could you could be with and get both sex and something approximating affection from? Um, I think, I mean, I was looking for love and validation everywhere at that mm-hmm. point. So I imagine um, some dudes were just like, no, just the sex part, please. Yeah, and, so I, much I, the love. and I would take the crumbs. Yeah. And then, like, also use that as validation of, like, guys just want sex for me, which is the story I made when I was little. Ah. So there, that's, like, how that happens of, like, validating this story. Yeah. So it was a matter of me rewriting that story, and it was such work because all of it obviously was just, like, self-love and self-worth and realizing that I was more than sex. <laughs> Over on the non-sex side of things, Charlene joined the touring company of Stomp, 
the Broadway show with dance and percussion and garbage cans and pipes. She had a good sense of rhythm, had played drums a bit, and she toured with Stomp for a couple years. And then she went to Hollywood to make it as an actor, got some small parts, including Miley Cyrus's drummer on the show Hannah Montana. But the issues, the sex and love addiction and the depression that went with it, didn't go away. I forgot that we're still in the point where it still has to get so much worse. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> um, well, because uh, rewinding it back a little, like, I mean, I was in my mid-20s when I was in L.A., but before that, like, even when I was, like, 18, 19, started to, like, pose naked for sketchy photographers because I wanted to be that girl. The girl that is loved by the men. Yes. Okay. So I did that for a little bit, and then— um, when I was in Arizona, um, when I was 21, I started stripping for a year. And, like, at that point, I was like, I really have it all figured out. Like, this is who I am. Like, I'd be giving a lap dance, and I'd be thinking, like, fuck you, Dad. This is what you did. Like, it was bad. And then that turned eventually in New York and in L.A. into sex work, like full-on sex work that I did until I was— 29. Mm. Yeah. So you were you were on TV and also doing sex work. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Did that feeling of empowerment stick around? See, here's the thing. That's what I'm curious I about. hear these stories from other sex workers where they're just like, I'm empowered for men, like all that stuff. Like, I don't relate to that. And I know everyone has their own experience. But for me, I was really doing it still from, like, that was my new cutting. Mm. It was like... I hate myself and I'm going to go do this because I can get paid for it. Or, like, my thinking was, like, well, I'm just going to, you know, bang some dude anyway. I might as well get paid for it. Like, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is my only value. This is what I'm going to do. So it's a sense of ownership and sounds like almost pride. Yeah, it was very—it's like it was self-loathing and and it was, like, very—it was—I was very miserable in it. Yeah. And I'd always be wasted or on drugs doing it. Like, it was a mess. It was a mess. Were I was you? never, like, you know, empowered and like, yeah, I'm an independent, strong woman. Like, never. Were you an addict? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. On what? I mean— What do you got? I know. What do you got? <laughs> um, weed, alcohol, cocaine— Ecstasy, I mean, anything you'd give me. If like if someone was just like, I have this, I would take it because it's like anything to not feel what I am. Self-medicating. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know then like growing up and, and through high school and college, did you ever say, hey, I'm fucked up in some ways that I need to go get fixed? Or did you just think this was the way people are? Um, well, I really thought, because then at some point, like, the, the drinking and the drugs started, and I was mm. like, oh, I figured it out. I just need to self-medicate. I was just like, oh, this is why people do this. Um, but in college, it got pretty bad, and I remember going to the, like, counselor at, on campus, and they were like, your case is so severe, you need to see somebody outside of here. So already it was a story of, like, oh, I'm, like, a lot. Um, but started seeing therapists then and was on and off in therapy throughout my 20s. Um, but it didn't get—like, I've had—I feel like I have had so many bottoms, but the 
bottom that really, really, really got me help, like uh, for my sex and love addiction, um, that was when I was 31. Mm. And I almost killed myself over a guy. I had already tried to get help for my sex and love addiction. And I had some recovery in me, and I had gone no contact with my ex, which is like a big thing from recovering from love addiction, obviously. And I was starting to get better, but then I went back to him. And then I had sex with him. And it made me even crazier than usual because I feel like I had maybe like two or three months of recovery in me or like sobriety that we would call from that. Um, And like— he kind of ghosted me. Like, I couldn't get in touch with him. He wasn't texting me back. Um, and it, like, really just, like, made me crazy. And I was, like, I didn't show up to anything that I needed to do that day. And I'm, like, pacing around my apartment, like, thinking I'm crazy, crying hysterically, and, like, f- trying to figure out how to kill myself. Like, I, like, I've, you know, had suicidal thoughts up until then. But that day, like, I was like, I really wanted to do it. Like, I was serious and I was like, I'm going to do it. Like, it wasn't even in a a dramatic way. It was very matter of fact of like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill myself. Mm. Um, And when it came down to it, though, I couldn't figure out how to do it. Like, I remember like looking through my apartment of like, like, I don't even have any pills. Like, and it, it was like embarrassing that like, I was so broke at the time. Like, I didn't even have a knife that was sharp enough to cut anything. And I thought, like, I remember, like, trying on my arm and, like, laughing because I'm just like, this is insane. And the last thing I said out loud was, where do I even find a bridge? Wow. (laughs) And then he called. He finally called. And I saw his name in his picture. And in that moment, I felt, like, all the anxiety and anguish dissipate from my body immediately like a drug. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't even answer the phone because I could feel what was happening in my body and my, my, my brain. And I said out loud, oh, this is how I know I'm sick. And that's when I could actually see it as a, like a real addiction of like this person that I've made into a drug. Yes. And so that was January 2014 when I really took my recovery really seriously and then like I stopped all contact and did the whole thing like serious. Spoiler alert, she gets better. And then she talks to an icon of independent film about it. And then she becomes a movie star. I always tell people, just seek professional help and you'll become a movie star. More of that journey in just a moment. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by Health Partners and by MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma surrounding mental illnesses, not just depression, but all kinds of mental illnesses. We enjoy having some laughs on this show. It's a way of dealing with the depression, a way of demystifying depression a little bit, making it not so scary. But let's not kid ourselves. It's a serious illness. The good news is that people can and do recover. They get help. And that's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation. It can be a little scary sometimes. But makeitokay.org is full of information you can use. What to say, what not to say. And stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitokay.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. 
Back with Charlene de Guzman, actor, writer, creative person, recovering sex and love addict. Here's a scene from the film adapted from her life, Unlovable. Joy, sex and love addict. Hi, Joy. Oh, this isn't my first time here. I tried a few of these meetings, like, a couple years ago. I didn't think I needed it. I thought you guys were weird. No offense. Anyway, I'm back because I guess I need help. In the movie, Joy, the character based mm-hmm. on you, uh, goes to a, a, like a, I don't know what the name of it would be, an anonymous group. Yes. Um, and Is that what you did? Yes. Okay. Yes. How did, how, what was that like the first time you went in there? Well, it's funny because a few years before that, I really did try it because at that point, like this is maybe two or three years before that, someone suggested to, it to me because I had, I was in a relationship where we were codependent and I, we couldn't leave each other and we kept breaking up and getting back together. And I was in love with somebody in another state who was married, but separated and had a girlfriend. <laughs> like, just so you know, like, where this went, like, that's when somebody suggested, like, hey, have you ever thought about, like, you heard of love addiction? Like, um, I mean, through, <laughs> through the lens of logic, and I know that this <laughs> situation doesn't operate on logic, but, like, I'm standing back here thinking bowling league, maybe, <laughs> or, like, you know, take a pottery class. Right. Like, I'm no. yelling all these things, because yeah. it just sounds exhausting. It's so it exhausting. It sounds so time-consuming. So, and then, I know, like, it was all distraction from taking care of what needed to be taken yeah. care of. Like, I had no self-love back then. Yeah. No self-worth. Like, no sense of self-care. Like, uh, I'm just... I, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, about the, the sense of self that is uh, at the core of uh, people who are interesting. Mm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want, want to say you know, people with depression, people with mental illness. So I, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find a more positive way of like, you know, the cool people, yeah. the, <laughs> the totally. complicated people. And it's so often that like those are the people who will give everything to a romantic partner mm. or throw themselves mm-hmm, completely mm-hmm, into a mm-hmm. job yeah. or, yeah. you know, or even like get obsessed with the Red Sox to yeah. the point of mania. That's a thing. It could be anything. Yeah. Because there's so little of themselves yes. that they can easily, it weighs so little you could easily throw it anywhere. Yes. Um, so with that anonymous group, mm-hmm. is that when the corner turned and you were able to to rebuild yourself a little? It was a combination of that, uh, the place that I went to therapy that was specifically for sex and love addiction. Like, I was part of this, like, women's group therapy that was amazing. Um, And then, like, individual therapy with a therapist that specialized in it as well. Um, And then I had um, these two mentors that helped me a lot. Like, it's just, like, coming from a place where you don't want help, because you don't want to even seem like you have a problem and like feeling unworthy of help Mm. and then getting to a place where just all this help just like shows up (laughs) and like just starting to lean into that and receive that. And again, that's just the self-love of like, wow, just that alone was a big change. Well, and it's so important too to get to help that knows specifically Mm -hmm. about the thing that you're dealing with. Like, you know, 
generalized therapists. Yeah. I'm glad they're there. I'm glad they know what they're sure. doing. Yeah, yeah. But if you can find somebody who says, Absolutely. oh, yeah, I've met people like you before. Mm-hmm. Here's how this is going to yeah. go. That makes a big, big difference. It's so important. Yeah. It's so important. Uh, you've done other films, but Unlovable is is the first, your first film that yeah. comes from you. Yes. Um, how did that begin to to turn all this into a movie? Yeah, yeah it was cool because <laughs> where you could eat popcorn and watch. I know so Charlene's weird. life. <laughs> <laughs> it's so wild just to think about it. Um, I started. I wrote a pilot based off of my experiences. Like for a TV show? Yeah, that's because when I started recovery, you know, um, the advice was like. Because, you know, I was so obsessed with boys and sex. It was like, you got to start. You got to get a hobby. You got to find out, like, what you can, you're can you into. And, like, for me, I was finding, like, oh, I'm a really creative person. And I love to write. And I love whatever. And so I wrote this pilot. And um, a year before this, uh, Mark Duplass had started following me on Twitter. Mark Duplass is a filmmaker and actor. He and his brother Jay Duplass have made several movies. They're known for intimate portrayals of complicated characters. And I sent him a DM and was just like, wow, thanks for following me. Like, you're one of my heroes. Like, I want to make movies because of you. And he was like, cool, send me anything you've written if you have anything. And I didn't have anything. So a whole year later, I DM him and I'm like, hey, I finally have something to send you. And it's the next day he emailed back and was like, I want to meet you and I want to make a movie out of this. Damn. I know. Again, with the miracles showing up when you just, like, show up for yourself. Now, did you—I mean, that's, that's like, the, the, the indie film lottery ticket, I right? mean, <laughs> it, it was crazy. Yeah, it's the American idol of, uh, of film characters who look deep inside themselves. Seriously. <laughs> and it's just wild to think, like, even, like, my first time meeting him and then starting to, like— outline this script for the movie like I was in the worst withdrawal like I was so early in my recovery when like so when I say that making the movie literally saved my life like I'm serious yeah because it was it kept me going the film was a success Variety called it excellent the LA Times said joy craves connection and we wish we could reach into the film's world and provide it for her yeah we premiered at South by Southwest okay we won an award there. That was cool. Congratulations. Thank you. That was my first film festival, so it was like, it was so <laughs> amazing. Wow. Yeah. So then when you're at South by Southwest premiering this film and, and winning an award, and then <laughs> it goes on from there and it plays other places, it's available for streaming on Amazon Thank right you. now. Um, does that, does it make you feel exposed in a comfortable way and uncomfortable. <laughs> How does it make you feel knowing so many people are watching yeah. stuff about like your sex yeah, life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it it gets weird sometimes, especially I remember when like the movie was going to start to stream and like doing all the press and it's just like, wow, I'm just like telling this story everywhere over and over again. Like this is weird, but it would always be fulfilling I mean, to this day, I get emails from, like, somebody that says, I watched it and now I'm getting help because of it. Or, like, I thought I was crazy and now I know I have this, too. Like, that is just everything to me. Because, again, seeing that everything that I've been through has value as well. Yeah, yeah. I I imagine people stop you on the streets and tell you— 
profoundly personal things about well, their life. Well, that was cool. Like after the festival, people that would yeah. come up to me and like share and like it's amazing. Yeah. 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 You got to got to protect yourself from those at a certain point, though. Oh, yeah. I definitely <laughs> I definitely have a system now. Good. Of, like, good. Yeah. Again, like that's why I mentioned boundaries, because I just feel like uh, having to learn that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Take it from a veteran depression podcast host. <laughs> <laughs> you got to build a few boundaries. Yeah. We can't all make the story of our life into a movie. Mark Duplass simply doesn't have that kind of time on his hands. But we don't have to. Charlene got a win in part because she took a look at her past and present and spoke honestly about what she saw. And you don't need Mark Duplass or even Jay Duplass to do that. Not only did I feel this new sense of self-worth, but it was cool that everything happened exactly the way it needed to happen in order to create those moments. Like, that's why I don't regret what my parents were like. I don't regret the centerfolds in the garage. Like, the movie wouldn't even have existed without all of that. Like, all of that has made me who I am now. And to be in this place now where I've taken care of myself and am available to share my story, to connect with other people, to help people feel less alone, to be of service in ways and that for me, I want to be continue to be creative with, like through movies, TV, or what books, whatever, to be of service in that way. Like, what a turnaround of my life, you know? Yeah. So that's everything to me. I mean, the movie is essentially an arc of a person getting healthier. Mm-hmm. Did you, had you reached the end of that arc when shooting began or are we watching you (laughs) in that arc in real time just under a different name, a character's name? Well, I mean, by the time we were shooting, I was definitely like well in terms of like not in withdrawal and just like in my healthy place, in the give back place. Um, By the time we were shooting, I was early into my first healthy relationship after, you know, obviously not dating for a while. We're still together. So we've been together for over three years. But I mean, I always say the work's never done. I always see that there's always layers. Like there'll be more stuff that comes up and it's just like, oh, this is a thing too. Or like, oh, this might have happened in my childhood. Like it just never ends. But I mean, what I see in myself now is like I can confidently say that I love myself and I, I'm proud of the way that I'm taking care of myself and like boundaries that I have, being able to ask for help, being able to receive, being able to trust the unknown, like all of these things that all of this work for years that has led to and I feel like will continue to go because we can infinitely love ourselves more and more and more. Mm-hmm. So as you enter into this more healthy relationship Mm -hmm. and you feel like it's going in a good way, how do you tell the person, look, here's my rap sheet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's what I have in my past. Yeah. Well, okay. I should mention part of my recovery was setting up a dating plan because, again, of, like, how to, like, 
you know, integrate back into dating. I needed a dating plan because for me, I never even dated before. I would just have sex with people immediately and then fall in love with them in quotes um, and be obsessed with them. Um, So on my plan, it was like, for the first month, you only see them once a week and you don't text them obsessively and it's a day date and you're sober and you don't spend the night and you don't do anything physical. The second month, you can kiss and hold hands, but you're still not having sex until you're in a committed relationship. Like it was like a very, you know, I needed that. I needed structure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had been on a few healthy dates on my dating plan and was cool. What was cool about it was like being able to leave after the second date and being like, I don't like this person and I don't have to have sex with them. Like I, my mind was so blown that I'm like, wow, I'm just walking away from this person. I could make that choice. Oh my gosh. Like, so like mind blowing. But when I met my boyfriend, we actually met in this a group for sex and love addicts. It was kind of like a retreat thing. And like we connected over that weekend. So we were very lucky where the issues were already out on the table. I mean, Mm. you know, we knew each other's stories, but it was cool because both of us needed to be on this plan and wanted to be on the plan. So, I mean, I got very lucky in that way. Um, So we did the plan and, you know, we didn't have sex until three and a half months in, which is wild for me. It's probably one of your longer relationships. I mean... Even before you got to that. Yeah. But it was so fun because it was so innocent. And, like, we felt like teenagers all the time. And I'm just like, oh, like, this feels really good to experience something different. When you were in the the previous uh, relationships where you'd have sex right away and then be obsessed with this person... Did you really fall for it every time thinking, this is the man of my dreams? Sometimes, not all the time. I would, there'd be the guys where I'm just like, this is the guy. And then there'd be guys that would be like, you know, I don't really like him, but I need somebody right now while I do look for the next one. Mm. And just like, just using them like drugs, you know? Right, right, right. Medicating. I imagine like if somebody is is addicted to heroin. Yeah. They will never do heroin again the rest of their lives, and that's, you know, they need to get heroin completely out of their world. Mm. But for a love and sex addiction, you know, you you want those things to be in your life. Yeah. And so how do you, how did you calibrate, oh, this is, this is the good kind and not the bad kind? Yeah. That's why it's so different from substance addiction, just because instead of just getting off of it, you have to eventually learn how to do it in a healthy way. And I feel like the recovery for me, it goes so deep because it's just like, okay, you need to learn how to love and take care of yourself now so you're not seeking it from other people. Or you need to learn how to validate yourself and make yourself feel worthy so you're not using all these other things. And so for me, I mean, it was a lot of healing, all the stuff that I've been avoiding feeling So, like, going there, going into my childhood, going into things, um, and really learning how to love myself and being comfortable single. Mm. Being so happy and whole and fulfilled that I was happy single because I had never been single since that first boyfriend in eighth grade. I was always jumping from guy to guy to guy to guy to guy. And so it wasn't until that point when I was 31 of, like, being on my own. And that was hard for me. But when I got to that place of feeling 
happy with myself and like learning how to fall in love with myself, knowing what I'm into, what I like, like really basic things, like eating when I'm hungry, sleeping when I'm tired, like super basic things. I I had to get to that place first before I was ready to date again. And I did get to that place and it, it felt so awesome. There was one day I told a friend, I was like, I could be single for five more years. I was so happy being single, which I would never have imagined because before that, I was like, I'm never going to be alone. Because you were finally nourishing yourself. Yeah. Instead of putting it all Yeah, not on a needing guy. something from anybody. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's pure freedom. On our next episode, Ms. Cracker from RuPaul's Drag Race recalls some unhelpful advice. People are always like, you need to you need to look into getting health insurance and get a therapist. I'm like, that's great. I will get right on applying for health insurance that covers mental health care. Then I will meet someone I've never met before in my entire life, which you know is my favorite thing, and talk to them about things that really upset me in a building that is inconveniently far away from this bed. Thank you for that advice. I hadn't thought of getting therapy before. Thank you very much. It's been very helpful. Oh, and have a banana for the potassium too? Great. It's fixed. I'm so glad you dropped by my mental illness to just do a drive-by shooting of great advice. The Hilarious World of Depression is a production of American Public Media. Our producer is Chrissy Pease. Our digital producer is Christina Lopez. Digital Underground produced The Humpty Dance. Phyllis Fletcher is our editor and our Fletcher. Our intern is Ariana Wilson. Recording engineer for this episode is Sean Campbell at KPCC in Pasadena. Technical director, John Miller. Our theme song was written and performed by Rhett Miller. If you need help, confidential help is available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. It's free 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 1-800-273-8255. The Hilarious World of Depression is supported by health partners and makeitokay.org. Make It Okay is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOkay.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting that conversation can be awkward. I know we get it, but Make It Okay has tips on what to say and what not to say. Stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It Okay at MakeItOkay.org. HilariousWorld.org is our web home. We're also on Twitter. And come visit us on Facebook. A lot of great conversation happening there with your fellow Thwad Balls. Good place to hang out. I'm John Moe. Bye now. Would you say I'm a hopeless case? Say it ain't so. Would you say I'm a sad clown? Tell me something I don't know. Say I'm a sad clown Tell me something I don't know